everybody, Magnus here. You know, I was listening to the new episode of Views from the Longbox. Now, just in case that's not specific enough for any of you, I refer to Views from the Longbox, episode 233, Collecting Comics in the 90s, part 2. This is the special that was about Wizard Magazine, right? And specifically, it was uh, it was about a uh, an issue of Wizard from 1996. Now, I guess this is what happens when you just podcast off the top of your head and you don't bother to put together decent notes, but I forget the exact issue number that they talked about. It was either wizard number 60 or number 65. It's one of those. I honestly cannot remember which, but whatever the case, you know, I got to tell you, it really was a sort of trip down memory lane for me, you know, because I'm pretty sure I owned the issue of Wizard that they were talking about because everything that they mentioned, it's like it rang a bell for me, you know, and I guess I just kind of forgotten how much affection I have for the comic book industry starting from about 1991 and then going right on through to maybe eh, like the beginning or maybe the middle of 1999 which I mean on the one hand I don't want to say that like that's my era of comics but you know I mean that is that was sort of like the time when I was when I was a kid and I was probably at my deepest in terms of collecting comics just that general sort of stretch and, you know, Wizard Com- uh, I, keep, I keep wanting to say Wizard Comics, forgive me. Wizard Magazine was, it was sort of like the expected obligatory companion that would accompany you through your fandom and collecting through the 1990s. Now, when, when Bailey and his co-host, Tom Panarese, who is the host of pop culture affidavit you know they were going through some of their quibbles with wizard and one of the things that that tom mentioned is that he was just not exactly the the target i guess audience for for wizard he was maybe just a little bit too old for their kind of juvenile almost potty humor you know but guys i was i mean that issue where uh, the issue in question that they talked about this again it was either number 60 or number 65 i forget which and like i say this is what happens when you don't actually make notes prior to starting your podcast you end up looking a little goofy perhaps but anyway that was very much where my sense of humor was that very juvenile not quite frat boy but very juvenile and immature type of sense of humor that wizard really specialized in i'm not saying it was you know, a fixture of every single thing that they published, because I don't really think that's accurate, but definitely their letters column, which I believe it was their their letters column, at least in that period. I want to say that the guy actually doing the letters column, his name was Jim McLaughlin, and he sort of specialized in that sort of over-the-top brand of, you know, just sort of potty humor. It's very juvenile, it's very immature, and I just ate it up with a spoon because... 
that was just the the season in life that I was in. I mean, I'm let's face it, guys, you know, you're 13, 14, 15 years old. You don't exactly have the most sophisticated sense of humor in the world. You know what I'm saying? So I don't know. It's it was just fun. You know, I guess it was fun to listen to all of that. And they're basically talking about all the same stuff that in a weird kind of way actually sort of forms the foundation of my comic book collecting adolescence where I was very much into comics. I was very much into collecting comics. I loved comics. I loved comics as a format and it just seemed like there was so much stuff that was coming out at that time that was, even if it wasn't necessarily the best comic book that you've ever read, it was nevertheless really, it it had, I, I always just thought it had potential, you know, like put it that way. Like I have never read a single issue of Scud in my entire life. And honestly, the way things are shaping up, I may never read an issue of Scud, but I remember reading about Scud in the pages of Wizard and thinking, you know, that comic book, just the way that they describe it, it kind of sounds like it's got a little bit of disco potential to it, you know? There's something here that actually sounds kind of interesting. Or you get into other stuff, like that weird bad girl trend that was going on for a while, and I think the poster girls for that were probably Vampirella on the one hand, and on the other hand, undoubtedly, you had Lady Death. Now, there were a lot of other also-rans and and other characters that you could mention. But I always just remember thinking at the very least that that whole sort of bad girl trend, really it sort of sprang out of fan interest at that time in Vampirella and in Lady Death. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's just the way that I remember things going, you know? And so, of course, they talked about that. And how can you not talk about that? Or rather, how can you talk about that and not make fun of it? You know, I mean... I'm sorry, it's there to be parodied. You know, you're, it's almost like it's a lost opportunity if you don't look down your nose at it at least a little bit. But they looked down their nose, but it was in a weird kind of like affectionate sort of way. Like, oh, don't you remember the time when? You know, it was, I don't know. I mean, I try not to gush a whole lot about other podcasts on my podcast because, you know, my assumption has always been that if you guys wanted to listen to what other people had to say, fucking you'd listen to what other people had to say. But guys, you know, this really is a, a good episode. You guys need to track it down, find it, listen to it. Again, Views from the Long Box, episode 233, title of which is Comics Collecting in the 90s, part two, Wizard Magazine, 1996. And it's just, like I say, it's just a fun, it's just a fun look back, you know? Like, it's strange to think that at one time, the comic book industry was so big and it was so important that it not only had a sort of people weekly of its own, it had a, a people weekly that just off the top of my head, I think it was like 150 pages long or something like that every fucking month, right? That's what the comic book industry used to be. And it, it, was, it could easily support the existence of a publication like Wizard. That's how things used to be, you know? And people can look down their nose at Wizard, they can scoff at it, make fun of it, say it was ultimately harmful to the industry. Which I kind of have to agree with that, actually. But 
it's like that doesn't really matter. You know, at the end of the day, Wizard Magazine was a lot of fun, you know? And I mean, probably from about 1993, 1994, going to about 1998 and around there, maybe that was, as far as relevance, maybe Wizard's heyday. But I just, you know, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that it was the greatest thing that there ever was, but I've just got a lot of fond memories of of Wizard. And... You know, I just, I look back on a whole lot of things. Maybe it's just an early midlife crisis on my part. I have no idea. But I just, I look back on a lot of things from back then with a lot of, a lot of nostalgia. So, (sighs) Michael Bailey, Tom Panneries, if you're listening to this, thank you very much for a very funny and very fun episode of Views from the Long Box. Thanks a lot, guys. Now enjoy the rest of the episode. Hey, your attention, please. This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Got to do with Bunny to conceal his own magnet form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. to Trinus Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows, but I use every eighth episode of this show to take a look back at Smallville. Now, originally, the eighth episode was intended for talking about Star Wars, but in the first place, that seemed a little bit too similar to what the two true freaks do with their monthly Star Wars show. And in the second place, oddly enough, I had less to say about Star Wars than I originally thought. I mean, who saw that coming? So, I rejiggered the format of Trinus Magnus Punches Reality a little bit and decided to use my eighth episodes to talk about Smallville. And... The reason for that is because I believe that Smallville is awesome, and it seems that more and more fans are starting to agree with me on that. Now, when I was going through the first three seasons of the show, which you could basically call Smallville Phase 1, but when I was going through Smallville Phase 1, I got a lot of feedback from people letting me know how much they'd come to really change their opinion about how awesome Smallville is. Now, the first season of Smallville is a little uneven. I don't deny that. But overall, the first season is tons of fun and I wouldn't trade it for the world. I mean, I really dig the first season, you know? 
Now, the primary issue that's going on in, in season one is how Clark instinctively became a hero all by himself. He didn't need anybody to push him into it or tell him what to do or anything. He just did it. Jonathan and Martha weren't there to speed Clark up. No. They were there to slow him down. There's a big bad world out there and Clark just isn't ready for it yet in season one. And you know what? Maybe the big bad world out there isn't ready for him yet either. So Jonathan and Martha always cautioned Clark to be careful, to not get hurt, to not hurt anybody else, to never get caught and all that bullshit. But they never told him that he had to go out there and save people. He already knew that he was supposed to do that. Clark decided what? Jonathan and Martha told him how. And realistically, Clark's judgment was mostly flawless during season one. But during season two, we started seeing cracks and flaws in Clark's thinking. He didn't always make the right choice. And a good example of that comes in Exodus, the season two finale, when Clark was so defeated by his own poor decisions that he ended up just running away from Smallville. Now, the mighty season three saw Clark making in some cases better decisions, but what he learned during the mighty third season is that even when he did the right thing, bad shit still happens sometimes. Clark discovered during the mighty third season that even doing the right thing has consequences to it. And that just about brings us to the dreaded season four, which is the beginning of Smallville phase two. <sighs> Look, there's a lot to admire about Smallville phase one. Those, f those first three seasons are absolute gold in several cases, but Smallville Phase 2 gets off to a pretty rocky start with the dreaded Season 4. And I talked a bit about some of those reasons back in episode number 142, which was all about Crusade, the dreaded fourth season premiere. One major thing that really bugged me about the dreaded fourth season was Lana dating Jason Teague, who was a football coach at Smallville High. Now, there's a real age difference between the two of them, and it's just inappropriate for a student to date a school teacher or a coach or whatever else. There's no justification for that, none whatsoever. And I've got personal reasons for having that opinion too, but if you want to hear them, go back and listen to episode number 142 because I'm not going to repeat all that bullshit here. Anyway, another problem is that the dreaded fourth season is where Lana really became unlikable. She kept secrets for no reason. She played weird mind games with people, most, most of whom were supposedly her friends. And pretty much she was a turbo bitch for most of this dreaded season. But 
There were a few good points to Crusade as an episode, and one of them is that it introduced a kind of significant theme for the rest of this dreaded season. Specifically, it introduced the recurring element of characters doing whatever they have to do to protect family. Whether it's blood family or adopted family, the characters in Smallville, as a TV show, will cross whatever lines are necessary to help family. That's true in Crusade, and indeed it's true of the dreaded season four at large. And there are positive manifestations of that. And believe it or not, there are some really dark, horrifying, creepy manifestations of it too. Now, let me just say that this has been true of previous seasons, but I'd argue that the dreaded season four upped the ante on family as an inviolable bond for the characters. Make sense? That particular theme. And in fact, I'd say that element is crucial to, ep to, to the episode Gone, which we'll be talking about shortly. And speaking of which, most of the episodes that we're going to be talking about in this chapter of the Smallville retrospective are actually really good. Now, I've said over and over again that the dreaded season four is the season when Smallville sucked. And as a whole, it is. But the, the thing is, this dreaded season actually starts off on a really strong note. Several strong notes, in fact. And that's maybe part of the problem. The dreaded fourth season gets kicked off with really strong episodes, a few of which actually are so important as to affect the rest of the entire series. And so my view is that the, these first bunch of episodes from the dreaded season four gave a lot of viewers, myself included, a kind of false sense of security about how good the dreaded season four as a whole would ultimately turn out. So the time is coming coming very soon when you're going to hear me rip some Smallville episodes to shit but for the batch of episodes that we're talking about this time around I've got mostly positive comments to make and I think you know what that means it's time for a break be right back to resume the discussion about the dreaded season 4 starting with episode 2 gone after these messages giant monsters, or as they're called in Japan, daikaiju? 
monsters like Godzilla, Rodan, Gamera, King Ghidorah, or Mothra? Do you like more obscure monsters, such as Gappa or Yangari? Do you like giant heroes like Ultraman or super robots like the Shogun Warriors? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then I think you might like my podcast, Earth Destruction Directive. I'm a dedicated fan of all things Daikaiju, and I'd like to share that with all of you. Please check out Earth Destruction Directive at twotruefreaks.com. Earth Destruction Directive, where we turn your Daikaiju dreams into city-smashing reality. Hi, it's John Glover. Welcome to the Smallville Retrospective. I hope you guys have a good time and learn a lot about all of us. at Smallville's dreaded Season 4. Now, there's a shitload of stuff to talk about here, but before we get too far into that, it feels like I should offer just a little bit of clarification in light of everything that you're about to hear. You see, I don't like the dreaded Season 4. I make no secret about not liking the dreaded Season 4. Hell, Lately, I don't call it anything except the dreaded Season 4. But the notes I've got here, the episodes I have to talk about, they're not that bad. Not bad at all. In fact, some of this shit's downright crucial to future seasons of Smallville up to and including the series finale. But don't let that fool you. The dreaded season four started off on a very strong note. I'll be the first to admit that, but at the same time, that doesn't change the reality of what the dreaded season four is. Anyway, to get into it though, here we've got episode two, Gone. Clark and Lois search for Chloe, but this gets a little bit complicated by Lois's dad, General Sam Lane, coming to town and getting in the way. As with Crusade, Gone's a pretty entertaining episode. It wraps up one of Season 3's remaining plot points by getting Chloe back into the picture. Now, there's some forced story logic behind that, but this episode had an objective, and it accomplished it in a very interesting way. Entertaining way, too. I'm going to pause here and say that Lionel did not blow up Chloe's safe house. I said that in the last retrospective, but it bears repeating here. Yes, Chloe's house blew up. We saw that much in the third season finale, but Lionel didn't cause the explosion. It comes out here and gone that Lex faked the explosion specifically to get people, 
which is to say Lionel and his henchmen, off Chloe's trail. Now, I'm not sure if that's exactly legal. And I'm absolutely positive that the FBI and the United States Army wouldn't be party to that. And I'd stake my Corps fortune that they would not be involved in any sort of cover-up about it. But nevertheless, that's what happened, and honestly, those are minor issues in the grander scheme of things. I just, I mention all of this because I find it unbelievable. But that doesn't make it a deal break. Now, the reason I'm being kind of a pain in the ass about this is because people want to believe, not because of Crusade and especially Gone, in spite of Crusade and especially Gone, that Lionel Luther is responsible for blowing up Chloe's safe house. And again, it comes out in Gone that Lionel had nothing to do with it. This was done to protect Chloe from possible retribution from Lionel. That's what happened. That's all that happened. So this whole idea that the relationship that Chloe and Lionel have in later seasons shouldn't have been possible because of the fact that he tried to kill her? People? Lionel never actually tried to kill Chloe. We just need to be clear on that. <clears throat> anyway, as I've said before, one of the dreaded Season 4's mission statements was to strive for a kind of lighter tone than the darkness that overwhelmed Season 3. That was fairly well in evidence in Crusade, but it's a lot stronger with Gone. And that's primarily due to Erica Durance's Lois Lane. She's a fun-loving but strong-willed college kid, and now and then she kind of acts like a college kid. Like, when she barges in on Clark while he's still in the shower, and she's wearing his shirt when she does it. Needless to say, Martha was a little bit shocked by that. Now... This is probably a good time to put the whole shit on pause here and talk a little bit about Tom Welling. Because I haven't really done a whole lot of that in these retrospectives, believe it or not. But go back and watch season one and see a very young, very inexperienced actor pretty much learning how to act. Now, people pick on him a lot, but what you have to remember is that Welling's resume was pretty slim before he was cast as Clark. He, <clears throat> he moved to Los Angeles, did some modeling stuff. He poked a toe into acting by doing sex episodes of Judging Amy, and then got the lead role in Smallville. That was the guy's entire career up to then, and let me pause so I can get a drink off my Dr. Pepper here. Hmm. <clears throat> Now, that was the guy's entire career up to then. And if you watch some of those first season episodes, that's pretty easy to believe. A lot of Welling scenes tended to have two other actors in there to cover for him. Not always, God knows, but a lot of scenes were structured that way. And let's face it, Welling needed the help once in a while. He was learning on the job, and he was probably overwhelmed with the expectations that people had of him. Now, his growth as an actor was so gradual that you almost don't even notice. But <clears throat> now and then, 
Welling would throw curveballs like Red from Season 2, where he really convinced you that he was that braggadocious and arrogant and eventually scary. Same thing with Exile, the Season 3 premiere. He toned down the scary part and was just, for the most part, he was just cocky and ego-driven. The dreaded fourth season, though, at least in my opinion, is when Tom Welling really reached for the stars with his acting. He was a truly different character through most of Crusade. For the most part, he was the cold, logical Kal-El rather than plain old Clark Kent. The guy sold it. The shower scene with Lois is another golden moment. Welling effortlessly brings across the embarrassment and awkwardness of it all. First, of Lois walking in on him in the shower, and second, of getting caught in the act of really doing nothing by Martha. In fact, there's this nice little comedic bit when Martha shows up to deliver towels when Clark slams the door on his shoulder to hide Lois from view, and it's just... It's just a funny little Cary Grant moment, and I've always really liked it. So, And that leads into how Tom Welling and Erica Durant uh, interacted with each other. At least in this episode, it's very 1930s screwball comedy with loud, domineering Lois challenging Clark's manhood every step of the way, and poor Clark's just trying to keep up. Now, <clears throat> contrast this to how Tom Welling and Kristen Krook usually interact with all of their long, awkward, pregnant pauses and making googly eyes at each other and all that stuff. There's just there's just no life to Clark and Lana stuff, especially as compared to Clark and Lois. Now, excuse me while I get another drink off my Dr. Pepper here. <clears throat> Sorry, guys. I've just got a really sort of dry throat today. Anyway, so there's, there, like I say, there's just, there's really no life to Clark and Lana's scenes together, but that's especially true in comparison to Clark and Lois's scenes, especially here at the start of uh, the dreaded season four. Now, I don't want that to come off as shippy as it probably does. I, I guess I mean all this more from the standpoint of acting, performance, and chemistry. Welling and Durant have that special quality, what, what the French call a certain, I don't know what. Now, lest I be accused of bashing on Kristen Kruk here, let it be said that she and Jensen Ackles have a similar quality with, uh, with each other. It's, it's not quite the same, and for that matter, it's really not quite as good as Welling and Durant's, but still... A very, uh, it's just a kind of similar energy. Does that make sense? It's a different sensibility, but the same type of vibe to it. They can kid and, and tease each other. And you buy that they spent most of, most of that summer hanging out together in Paris. Now, I will be the first to admit that the writing of the dreaded season four isn't always there to take care of all the actors all the time. But this is the first time that I can think of where mostly everybody truly rises above uh, substandard material and comes away with, I think, some pretty memorable performances. Keep in mind, people, 
I don't have the same eye for acting that other people do. I'll be the first to admit it. But at the same time, I do know when something works. And Welling's finally on a par with anybody else in the cast, where now, whereas in earlier seasons, that wasn't always the case. And I guess my explanation for that is Erica Durant brings out the best in them. That much isn't open to debate. Anyway. So Clark and Lex have their first scene together since Covenant last season, in The Mighty Season 3. And only because Clark needs information that only Lex can give. When Clark pulled the plug on his association with Lex, he wasn't just kidding around. He really meant it. Anyway. Lana's stuff. She's got the the crystal of water symbol tramp-stamped to her lower back. Other Lana stuff. Lana and Lex have a scene at the Luther Mansion right when she gets back to Smallville. Now, she says nothing at first, and Lex says only that she looks great. First, first of all, I'm, that's the perfect way to encapsulate any conversation Lana would probably want to have. But I guess second, it's one of those scenes that it just, it's one of those scenes that come along sometimes where, I don't know, it just, it underscores just how well these characters know each other by now. They can trade smiles and, and just go directly into their conversation without having several minutes of, oh my god, I didn't know you were coming, it's so good to see you, and, and, and bullshit like that, you know? Of course, the scene's derailed almost right away with Lana not telling Lex why she's home, exactly, or after Lex mentions that Clark's resurfaced after being feared dead, Lana says she doesn't want to talk about Clark. Fuck me. Anyway... Deeper themes and implications. As with Crusade, the director of photography, uh, photography played tricks with the bars of Lionel's cell. The prison bars are soft and blurry during Lionel's coverage and during his close-ups, and the effect suggests that Lionel can't be safely locked up and hidden away. He may be incarcerated, but he's just as dangerous as ever. The prison bars are solid and clearly defined during Lex's coverage, which suggests the inverse. That Lex, it may be that Lionel may be the one who's behind literal bars, but Lex is the one who's truly in prison. Unlike Crusade, Gon actually starts delivering on this symbolism. Lionel makes thinly veiled threats against Lex's life. It's a powerful scene, made all the more so by the cinematography and the symbolism. In the very next scene, the paranoia Lionel's tried to cultivate has already taken root with Lex because he's reluctant to drink his glass of wine. But going back to the symbolism, it's not completely done away with when Lionel goes to prison. His close-ups don't feature prison bars in front of him, even though they're there. The prison bars only show up during Lex's close-ups. 
not sure if that counts as resolving symbolism, but the only time we see Lionel's prison bars is when the door slams behind him as he enters general population and gets surrounded by the other inmates. Then, and only then, is Lionel literally, visually, and symbolically caged. As I say, the writing this season, look, it is what it is. Which is to say, it's not always very good, but... As ever, you can't fault Smallville on a visual level. Something else. Here again, we have Clark solving problems and answering questions without having to use his fists as a battering ram. And people, there are times when Superman has to be able to bust a few heads to get the job done. Asylum, from the mighty third season, is a good example. Clark had no choice but to get physical with a few people in order to find his way to Morgan Edge. But that doesn't mean that Clark can't use his brain to solve problems. In this case, General Lane offered us a a fine cigar to Jonathan. It stuck in Clark's mind. He remembered that moment. And then later on, when Clark and Lex uh, talk at the mansion, Clark already knows to be on the lookout for a connection between Luther Corp and the Army. A stubbed-out cigar in an ashtray is... In a sense, the smoking gun that Clark's looking for. Now, yes, in the real world, that'd be pretty thin. But it works pretty well for a TV show, so I'm going to let it slide. Clark knows that Luther Court paid for Chloe's funeral for some reason or another. He knows that Sam Lane's in town for something to do with Chloe, and he just established a connection between the Army in general and Sam Lane in particular to Luther Court in general and Lex in particular. So anyway, not sure if this next bit qualifies as deeper anything, really, but Clark says that the Kowachi Cave Wall promises Clark is going to have an enemy. Clark's now starting to think it's going to be Lex. That much could have been obvious from Talisman, from the, from the Mighty Third Season. Now, mind you, it doesn't help too much that Clark caught Lex in another lie this time around, and this time it was about Chloe, her survival and her current whereabouts. Lex had good reasons for hiding Chloe, and he had very good reasons to not be upfront about her with Clark. But either way, it's another lie that Lex told Clark, and then he got caught in. What's interesting, though, is that Martha and Jonathan are willing to give Lex his due in helping to bring down Lionel. It's Clark who's the negative Nancy here for once by pointing out that Lex gained control over Luthercorp thanks to Lionel's conviction. In Clark's view, this wasn't an entirely selfless act. And think about that for a minute. Lex did the right thing. Maybe not for the right reasons, but he did the right thing. And that's not enough in Clark's book. Clark doesn't use his powers to get his way about everything and make all his dreams come true. And if Clark tried to use his position and his power to get ahead, his parents would be the first ones to call bullshit about it. So just why the hell does Lex get a free pass here? This says a lot about Clark's worldview and his morality, actually. 
Now, the episode ends with Jason having followed uh, Lana from Paris back to Smallville and surprising her at the Talon. I, en- I enjoyed this episode, except for the parts with Lana in them. And I'm a little, little tempted to warn you that you should expect to hear me say that about a lot of episodes this season, but honestly, I'm not sure how often I'll be able to. What I mean by that is I've tried very hard to block out so much of this season that I really can't swear to much beyond the first handful of episodes. After that, guys, it's every man for himself. But for right now, we're still in a good section of Smallville's dreaded fourth season. That's why you haven't heard me just rip an episode to shit yet. Because they mostly haven't deserved it. That starts to change beginning with episode 8, Spell. But the good news is, I'm not going to have to talk about Spell until next time. So, for right now, we're going to talk about Facade, episode th- which is to say episode 3. Facade starts with a flashback to Clark's freshman year during a pep rally for the douchebag football team. Whitney makes his final appearance on the show uh, in the process of this uh, of this flashback, and I just find that to be a nice little bit of continuity. Now, a while ago, I mentioned Tom Welling's growth as an actor over and against his performances from season one. This scene at the beginning of Facade underscores my point. For a good bit of uh, season one, Welling was completely raw and new to acting. And as a result, he played a lot of his scenes awkwardly and with a lot of stiffness. And in fact, in a lot of cases, that actually served the character, but it was mostly due to Wellings being such a rookie. He tries to replicate that same type of performance here, and he just can't quite manage it. Welling can't intentionally act badly now. And that's a big step for him because there was a time when he could barely act at all. So, intentionally or not, This scene kind of serves my argument of how much that uh, Tom Welling's grown as an actor by the time of the dreaded fourth season. Now, this next bit's more of a stylistic thing relating to tone, but the main part of the episode starts with a Clark fantasy sequence where he pretends to be a football megastar. Now, we haven't seen a whole lot of Clark's daydreaming since the pilot episode, so... This feels like a, a, a kind of nice little return to that, a little bit. But as an episode, it's also a lot shinier and happier than basically anything we saw in The Mighty Season 3. Goff and Miller were heavily pushing a less dark tone for the dreaded fourth season, and so far it's working for them. Understand, this was commonly known around the time Crusade premiered. Goff in particular was quoted as saying that things got way too dark and gloomy during the mighty third season, so they wanted to take things back to a little bit more of a first season type of approach in terms of just fun stories. Now, whether they intended to or not, they gave me the impression that the dreaded season four would be a kind of, sort of, sequel to the first season by 
maybe bringing back some of those supervillains and not having maybe not having as much of a wide a, a season wide storyline and things like that obviously that isn't what happened but the idea of doing a real sequel to the first season which revisits some of the same conflicts and themes and whatnot from an older and wiser time in life really appealed to me. This is not the last time I'm going to make a comment like this, incidentally. Anyway, Chloe's pretty quick to blame Abby for Brett and Lana both winding up in the hospital. The plot and the themes of Facade need her to do that, so I go with it. But at the same time, it's an incomprehensible chain of logic. Don't get me wrong. It's easy to believe in. Especially for people who've seen as many fucked up things in Smallville as Clark and Chloe have. That's not the issue. The issue is singling out Abby specifically. Her apart from everybody else. Again, it needs to happen. So I'm not going to bag on it too much apart from noting that Chloe's suspicion doesn't really spring from logic. Something else? Lana pays a visit to Dr. Fine, which is to say Abby's mother. Dr. Fine says that what Lana has is no ordinary tramp stamp tattoo. And on top of all of that, she says it'd take a heavy-duty skin graft to get rid of that bitch. Now, apparently this was a fairly popular and influential tattoo because... Apparently, some chicks who watch this show got tattoos just like Lana's. I have nothing kind or positive to say about that, so I'm just going to move right on. In fact, I'm moving on to the deeper themes and implications, in fact. Lois flat out says that she has no interest in writing or journalism. Lois. Lois Lane. She says that. Now, some people went a little hard on Holly Harold, the writer of Facade, for being a, a little too self-referential and ironic in that. What the haters seem to be missing, though, is that Lois herself doesn't see the contradiction in driving cross-country to investigate the truth of her cousin's murder. The only thing Lois forgot to do in that case is write down everything that happened. But otherwise, she's basically there. Lois Lane's arc for the next couple of seasons revolves around taking this college kid who doesn't think she has any interest or aptitude for journalism and show her that she's already there in most ways. She just needs to start putting the shit in writing, that's all. And of all people, Chloe's the perfect person to encourage Lois with investigative journalism. Not just because they're their cousins. Not just because of how much trouble Lois went to, and got in, for searching for the truth, but because her determination helped save Chloe's life. As far as Chloe knows, anyway. She doesn't know that Clark deserves a big share of the credit there, but then again, that's the way Clark likes it. Still, what Lois herself underestimates, at least at first, is how quickly and how far she'd get sucked into the world of journalism. She plays it off, or tries to anyway, but you can tell she had the time of her life. 
So to put it another way, her actions defy her words in this very same episode. Anyway, other stuff. Clark decides he wants to join the football team. Again, another thing that made me initially think the dreaded season four was going to be a kind of sort of sequel to season one. As I said, revisiting some of the same conflicts, but this time around from a, a, a little more mature point of view. And in this case, that's precisely what happens. Clark joins the football team, and Jonathan has a lot of the same resistance as before, but this time, this time, he trusts Clark to handle his powers responsibly. Clark's growing up. He's battled more supervillains than Jonathan will ever live to count. And he's had a a, a pretty rough time of it, especially during the mighty third season. At the same time, though, Jonathan can't just let this slide completely. He has to warn Clark that he's made this decision by himself. First, that's not how responsible adults behave. But second, the consequences of this, if there are any, they're all on Clark. He's got to be ready to accept them. Meanwhile, Martha takes a job managing the Talon. Uh, very bluntly, the Kents need the money. Jonathan and Martha look at the same problem but see two different solutions. Jonathan wants to cut something from the family's budget, while Martha doesn't see anything more to cut. But neither of them are talking about the real issue at first. And that would be Martha needs more than, a, than life on a farm to keep her occupied. She could have been anything she wanted if she'd stayed in Metropolis. She could have been a hotshot lawyer or corporate titan in her own right, but she chose family. Well, her husband's now on the mend from his heart attack, and her, son, her son's reached a point in his life and maturity where he doesn't need Martha to be his mommy quite as much. Martha needs to earn money to help out around the house, but she also needs to be productive. The Talon's a good choice for her, under the circumstances. Jonathan and Martha at first struggled to identify the issue, but after all these years of marriage, they realize the real conflict, they discuss the issue like rational adults, and they agree on a solution that works for the benefit of the family. And this all happens mostly in one scene. How often do you see stuff like that on television? Anyway. Clark barges into Jason's office at the school and finds Lana there, but accepts Jason's cheesy excuse about Lana being his guide. Lex checks in on Lana at the hospital where Jason just happens to be visiting. Lex doesn't buy a word that Jason says. He knows what's really going on. I mention all of that to say that it's just an interesting point-counterpoint going on there. Clark's naive. Not stupid. Naive. There's a difference. Lex has been around the the block a few times. He can see through bullshit excuses like Jason's pretty easily. 
And so those moments work well for both characters. So, another supervillain vanquished, another ending, another pop song. I really love the dunk tank sequence at the end here, partly because, I hate to say it, I kind of like that Avril Lavigne song in the background. But partly because the scene plays into a lot of Chloe's feelings and insecurities. At the same time, it's also partly because the scene capably demonstrates that Lois and Clark do kind of dig each other. In the right circumstances, they'll even trade smiles and possibly even flirt. Apart from another opportunity to showcase just how well Durant and Welling play scenes together, it's a chance to remind us that Chloe loves Clark. There's unfinished business there. And that's an important thing to, to reestablish considering what the next couple of episodes are all about. Speaking of which, Episode 4, Devoted. Cheerleaders spike the football player's Gatorade with a kryptonite cocktail designed to turn them into their love slaves. Chloe gets a dose and sets her eyes on Clark. This is a fairly innocuous plotline once you get past the kind of heavy-handed commentary on sexual politics. And I happen to think it's, it's in keeping with the lighter tone the dreaded fourth season's shooting for right now. So, so, so far, Goff and Miller are four for four in terms of keeping the tone consistent. Clark's joined the football team, which gives him a great view of practice and games from the bench. From the bench. Coach Quigley's already put together a team for the season. All other things being equal, the best Clark can hope for right now is second string. But this is Smallville, so luckily for him, all other things aren't equal. When the kryptonite love potion-dosed quarterback tries to shoot Jason, Clark gets to take his place on the team. Mind you, the other team members have philosophical problems with that and give Clark a kind of hard time. And so the rest of this episode is spent, and arguably the next couple of episodes are going are, are to be spent resolving that. Anyway. Deeper themes and implications. Chloe still has the hots for Clark. That much is obvious. But what brings that out is the kryptonite Gatorade. Oddly enough, though, that's the more important issue here. Back in Season 1, kryptonite experiments were Lionel Luther's department. He set up these little fringe research projects shrouded in absolute secrecy deep in the bowels of Luther Court buildings. In Season 2, kryptonite experiments were more the purview of scientists, and researchers working slightly more in the open at Luther Corp. Their objectives were trade secrets, to be sure, but the projects themselves, or at least the existence of them, that wasn't exactly shielded from anybody. Now, true, Lex didn't exactly put up billboards advertising his, his work on Meteor Rocks, but he didn't go to paranoid lengths to keep it all hidden, either. In The Mighty Season 3... Non-Luther Corp scientific entities like Summerholt were doing their own kryptonite experiments. It was starting to become slightly more open now. It's becoming more mainstream. It isn't something that's just restricted to Lionel Luther or Luther Corp. 
But in here, now, in the dreaded fourth season, cheerleaders start doing kryptonite experiments. Meteor rocks have gone mainstream. That's what I'm saying. Anyway, other stuff. Lex is a rich kid who comes from a rich family. The majority of problems that Lex has had in life can usually be bought off. So, I don't blame him for trying to uh, bribe Clark with new football uniforms for the team. I also don't blame Clark for resisting it. He's got every right to be pissed off here. And Lex seems to get that. He gives Clark everything he had in that room of obsession of his, which makes for an act of repentance on Lex's part. And I think it helps that Lex happened to rescue Clark during Jason's attack. Jason had pretty much beaten Clark to a bloody pulp when Lex saves the day. Now, a lot of Lex's theories about Clark relied on the assumption that Clark somehow survived getting run over by a Porsche at 60 miles an hour. Lex truly regretted his actions before he walked into the barn. Otherwise, he wouldn't have walked into the barn at all. But imagine what he must have thought when he arrived in time, not only to save Clark's life, but also find him bleeding from multiple injuries. Just like any regular human would. Anyway, this season isn't the first time Lex has talked about his dark side. Hell, it's not even the first time Lex has talked to Clark about it. But it is the first time that Lex has credited Clark as a sort of purifying agent to drive the darkness away. Something about being friends with Clark cleanses Lex's soul. Now, if it sounds like I'm indulging the metaphor a little too much, just stick around. Much to learn, you still have. Anyway, later... Lex shows Clark that his room, of, uh, his room of obsession has been completely dismantled. Again, it's an act of repentance. And this time, Clark's willing to forgive. All he needs is one simple favor. Get Lois Lane into college and out of his life. Lex is only too happy to make that happen. Other stuff. Chloe quits the torch. For a while, anyway. And while she's MIA, Lois picks up the slack. It was only... Now, guys, keep in mind, it was just in Facade. The last episode. That Lois said that journalism and shit just isn't her thing. But not only did she kick ass on the story that she wrote back in Facade, she willingly accepts responsibility for running the torch. But Magnus, but Magnus, Lois pitched a royal fit over running the torch. Au contraire. What she objected to was Chloe quitting. And especially quitting so she can chase after Clark, who's, lest we forget, shot her down before. Lois isn't worried about managing the torch. She's just trying to look out for Chloe here. The kryptonite love potion wears off, though, just in time for Devoted's denouement. For the first time since Vortex in Season 2, Clark and Chloe talk about their relationship. And specifically, if it's just a friendship. Chloe says that she's open to more. 
a lot more. But Clark isn't. Now, on the one hand, it's a bitter fucking disappointment for those of us who were uh, who, who wore their Cl- uh, Chloe and Clark jerseys for the first few seasons of the show. And I counted myself among them at one point, but keep in mind that Clark's trust isn't necessarily an easy thing to regain. Just ask Lex if you don't believe me. Now think about Chloe. She's dug into Clark's background on several occasions. Granted, some of those were against her will. For a time there, she was under Lionel Luther's thumb, and she was forced to do his bidding. On another occasion, she was going to use her truth-telling ability to force the Kents to give up the goods on Clark. Chloe ultimately expressed the utmost remorse for her actions and eventually backed off. Clark understood the occasions when she was under duress, or maybe even under the influence. He forgave her. It may have taken time, but he forgave her. And the number of times he misused her when he was under some kind of influ- uh, influence? That was probably a factor in his decision. But at the same time, that's still a lot of water under the bridge. Chloe's violated his boundaries too many times. And of all people, Clark needs boundaries in a relationship. Sure, sometimes Chloe had a good reason for doing what she did. But not always. And either way, it still happened. That's going to affect how Clark feels about her. Now, should it affect how Clark feels? You know what? Maybe not. Maybe not, if we're talking about 20 or 30 years of marriage. But when he and Chloe have never even really dated? Hell, before either of them really had fully, fully formed feelings for one another? Honestly, I can see where Clark's coming from on this. Now, apart from that, there's a scene where Lana sends Clark a lot of the wrong messages. She attends football practice as a favor for Jason. But she can't admit that because students and teachers aren't supposed to date each other because that's always completely, 100%, inexcusably fucking wrong, and someone should have been fired for setting up this dumbass plotline, but... They weren't, and I probably shouldn't rant about it now anyway, because I did that last time. So I'll I'll just start all over again, and please disregard this entire diatribe. Sincerely, Trentus Magnus. Apart from that, there's a scene where Lana sends Clark a lot of the wrong messages. She attends football practice as a favor for Jason, but she can't admit that because students and teachers aren't supposed to date each other, so she tells Clark that she's there out of solidarity. Lana never saw Clark suit up for the football team in the first season. She quit the cheerleading team before Clark joined. So, again, things like this made me think that the dreaded fourth season was going to be a kind of sort of sequel to the first season. But, obviously it won't be. At least, not completely. But, whatever, she did it here. Clark, for his part, was really touched by that. Even though, in truth, Lana attending football practice didn't have but jack and shit to do with him. Originally, this episode marked, just to kind of move, move on here, onto a different subject. Originally, this episode marked uh, 
Lois Lane's departure from the show. This arc was intended to be a fun little romp, but in the main, Lois was never intended to be a permanent fixture on this show. So, this is where she says her goodbyes to Clark. Their conversation's a lot less playful, but still somewhat flirty. Lois even gives Clark an easy punch on the arm as she says goodbye. And honestly, I was originally just fine with this being Lois Lane's swan song on Smallville. I thought it was a solid, creative way to set up the future between Clark and Lois without overdoing too much of anything. Again, I completely wipe my ass with non-spoiler policies during this, but I'll say that Lois comes back for more episodes later on. The reason for that is because Lois fits in well with the stories that are being told this year, but another thing is that Erica Durant and Tom Welling just go perfectly together as far as leading man and leading lady stuff is concerned. Individually, they're both strong actors at this point, but playing scenes together brings out the best of both of them. You'd have to be blind not to see that. And so Goff and Miller wisely decided to bring her back again later on. And it pays off in a big bad way. At least in my opinion. Now, the placement of facade right next to devoted invites comparisons. People, it's just the nature of the beast. If there was a single theme running through both episodes, it's that love comes from the heart. It can't be manufactured by superficialities or enhanced by kryptonite love potions. It's not a controllable or containable thing. It simply is. And if it isn't, forcing it isn't the right answer. Sooner or later, the potions wear off and what was love comes crashing right back down. Sooner or later, people get old, and what was lust now turns to apathy. In Smallville, as a TV show, the only lasting relationships, romantic or otherwise, come from a place of true tenderness, intimacy, forgiveness, and acceptance. Love can't be created, compelled, or controlled. But when it comes truly from the heart, it can't long be resisted either. All in all, Devoted's a fun little episode and, under other circumstances, probably would have been a worthy farewell for Lois. Most of all, though, it continues the promise Goff and Miller made about softening things up a little bit more this season and trying to tell stories that are more fun and lighthearted. And on that basis, I believe it's successful. And so, run. Episode 5. Bart Allen comes to Smallville, makes friends with Clark, and steals from Lex, but eventually he turns over a new leaf. You know, run has a special place in Smallville history for being the first episode to introduce a character outside of the Superman mythos into the show. And I gotta tell you, for as well-received as Bart Allen ultimately was, a lot of fans didn't greet news of his casting with a whole lot of enthusiasm. Now, it's not so much anything to do with Kyle Gallner uh, and all of this, uh, so much as it's got to do with the fact that it's Bart rather than one of the other speedsters. 
Basically, though, Goff and Miller had a story they wanted to tell about a Flash. And the short version of the, of the drama behind all of that is that Bart Allen was the only character they could use at the, uh, at the time. Jay Garrick, Wally West, and Barry Allen are all name-checked and run, but they couldn't be shown because another Flash TV show was the half-ass in development at the time. And so because of that, almost all of the other speedsters were being reserved. But that Flash show never happened, and so Smallville was stuck using Bart. Permanently. But first things first. Goff and Miller here again try to lighten things up by depicting Clark and Jonathan coming out of a doctor's office where Jonathan's gone for a checkup on his heart, and then they proceed to a football game. Now, look, I love The Mighty Season 3. I'd never talk smack about The Mighty Season 3. What I'm about to say, therefore, is not a slam on The Mighty Season 3. But if this was an episode from The Mighty Season 3, the show would have started in the doctor's office where the doctor gives Jonathan a lot of serious warnings, Jonathan frowns, and Clark worries. But here, they come out of the doctor's office, sum up the conversation that Jonathan and the doctor had, and then they talk about a Metropolis Sharks game they're supposed to go to. And then all hell breaks loose and Bart has to save Jonathan. And then from there, we're off to the races, so to speak, after that. My point is that Run starts off on a noticeably lighter note than most of what we got in Season 3, and from there the episode becomes an adventure with Clark and Bart. There's really not a whole lot of darkness here, and even the more serious parts of the episode are a vehicle for more fun and action. Another thing here is that I read at one point that Bart was intended to be introduced in Run, and then brought back again later on in the dreaded Season 4's Run, for another episode or two. I never really knew all the details. Hell, I don't, I don't think there are all that many details to be known, but at one point, that was the plan. The plan got scotched, though, because Kyle Gallner ended up with a busy schedule after run. He did guest appearances on several shows and even ended up getting a recurring role on the first season of Veronica Mars at about this same time. Now, I don't want to get too much into that, but apparently he was told ahead of time that his role in the first season of Veronica Mars was going to be pretty small, but he'd play a much bigger role during the second season. And that's exactly what ended up happening. The end result of all this bullshit, though, is Kyle Gallner couldn't come back to Smallville anytime soon. And so... This is my way of saying that I don't think it's an accident or a coincidence that Gallner makes his next appearance on Smallville after the second season of Veronica Mars was over and done with. That means you shouldn't either. Because after all, I'm right. But I mention all this to be fair to Goff and Miller. They had a lot of plans lined up for the dreaded season four that just, for whatever reason, never came to pass, and in several cases, that really wasn't their fault. I mean, who could have predicted that Gallner, who was pretty much a newcomer to the business at the time, would get so much exposure from Run that, ironically enough, he wouldn't be able to come back for more episodes later on? Now, apart from that stuff, 
Lex gets his hands on a page festooned with Kryptonian symbols taken from a 14th century manuscript. Now, there's some bullshit myth built into it about Rasputin and whatnot, but the short version is that it hides a map to what Lex called unimaginable power. Lex suggests that he and Clark work together on this now that Lex is no longer keeping secrets from him. Clark finds the hidden map instantly using his x-ray vision. Lex uses technology to do the same thing, but what's interesting here is that neither of them tell the other what he's found. So much for trust and friendship, I guess. Anyway, deeper themes and implications. Run's also historic for being the first time Clark met someone with powers which totally outclass his own powers. Historically, Clark's always been the most powerful character on the show. Now, other characters might show up with powers that maybe roughly approximate Clark's, but he's never usually outgunned by anybody. But it's true. Clark may be fast compared to everybody else on the show, but in terms of super speed, Clark's riding a tricycle while Bart's driving a Porsche. During the Clark's first confrontation with Bart, a chase ensues and Bart runs across water. Now, it stands to reason that Clark can probably do that too. Probably. The issue here, though, isn't necessarily that Bart has an ability that Clark doesn't. It's that Bart's invested more time in learning about his power than Clark has. And that's right on the money. Clark's never really tried to push the limits of his abilities before. Clark uses his powers to do whatever job needs doing, but never do we get the impression that he's experimented with his limits and tried to figure out what he can do and what he can't do. As a result, Bart running across the water catches Clark completely off guard. He's never seen anything like that before and doesn't know what the fuck to do. Also, the tail end of Run shows that Bart's only been using a fraction of his speed capabilities throughout the episode. Clark pours everything he's got into that race with Bart at the end of the episode, but Bart outruns him backwards. And then Bart really stretches his legs and outruns Clark a lot like how Clark outruns normal humans. There's literally nothing in Clark's experience for someone who can move that fast. It's the first indication Clark's ever had that he may have a wide assortment of amazing powers but someone else pretty much has a monopoly on super speed. Apart from all that stuff, though, this is Clark's first real chance, maybe in, in the history of the entire series, to be a moral authority for another character. Now, he was Ryan's quasi-older brother, but come on. You know, Bart needs someone to smack him over the head and tell him to get his act together. And Clark's just the boy to do it, too. Of all people, Clark knows how dangerous superpowers can be if they're not handled with responsibility and with care. The Kent family, in general, and Clark in particular, have gotten royally butt-fucked the times Clark didn't take his own powers seriously. At the same time, though, Bart has something to teach Clark. A smaller lesson, maybe, but Clark's histori historically treated his powers like a burden. A curse at times, even. Bart shows Clark that, you know what? There are perks to having superpowers. 
Maybe they shouldn't be used irresponsibly. But that doesn't mean you can't have some fun with them once in a while. And who knows, maybe hang out in Florida and flirting with some beach chicks. Now, up to now, Clark's mostly only used his powers to protect others. The only time he's been reckless with them is when he's close, uh, or rather when he's dosed, on red kryptonite. The rest of the time, Clark's the picture of honesty and responsibility. And that's good for him, but there's nothing wrong with having some fun once in a while. Jonathan's faith and positive opinion, just to kind of change the subject here a little bit, Jonathan's faith and positive opinion of Lex from Gone, turns out that's pretty short-lived. At the beginning of the show, Jonathan warns Clark to be careful about Lex, and this isn't discontinuity, at least not necessarily. Jonathan could be, he could just be taking a broader view of the situation now that the hoopla about Lionel Luther getting sent to prisons died down. Cooler heads may be prevailing here. One of the main issues in Run, intentional or not, is Clark's capacity for forgiveness and reconciliation. Clark forgives Bart for taking advantage of his family and then tries to steer him in a more positive direction. Clark's already forgiven Lex for investigating his background and his family. Now, true, he doesn't completely trust Lex with what he found on the manuscript page, but their relationship's a lot warmer now than it was in, say, gone. Anyway, other news. Jason finds uh, Lana's tramp stamp while they're making out and his hands wander. Lana refused to talk about it, or for that matter, even tell the truth. And not because keeping the stupid tattoo even makes any kind of sense whatsoever, it's because she's a fucking idiot. Eventually, though, she shows Jason the Kawachi Caves and that the crystal of water symbol isn't just tramp stamped on her back. It's also one of the symbols in the cave. That's where it comes from. <sighs> now, just so I can end my comments about Run on a positive note, this is yet another fun adventure story with plenty of action and humor. It's a good match for what's come so far in the dreaded season four. And that makes it tonally different from much of uh, The Mighty Season 3. And again, that's not bashing on The Mighty Season 3, but you can't argue that it didn't get pretty fucking dark. So far, Goff and Miller have kept their promise about delivering lighter stuff in this, the dreaded fourth season. Anyway, Transference, Episode 6. Without a doubt, this is one of the most important episodes of Smallville ever. But at the same time, it's a character-out-of-character episode, and a damned good one, too. Transference also betrays a little bit of the Smallville formula. If you compare the story structures of The Mighty Season 3 and The Dreaded Season 4, you find a lot of similarities. You've got a story, or rather, you've got a two-part season premiere, a standalone story in Episodes 3 and 4, Episode 5 has mild but important exposition to help set up the season-wide story, and then Episode 6, the first real chapter of whatever that season-wide storyline is going to be all about. Go ahead, compare the structure of both seasons sometime. 
they're a lot more similar than you may think. And that's not a bad thing either, it just means there's a formula at work, and sometimes it's a little obvious. Anyway, so, transference starts with Clark once again daydreaming about being a football superstar. Again, this isn't something we've seen a whole lot of since the pilot. In fact, of the three times we've seen Clark daydreaming, two of them have been this season. So there's that. Now, all of transference really fits under the, the deeper themes and implications. First off, you've got Lex and Lionel meeting in the prison at the beginning of the episode. Now, it says something that Lex was even willing to go. He knows Lionel's only got a month to, uh, left to live and that this is probably going to be their last conversation. So Lex goes to visit him. Lionel assumes their blood bond means absolutely nothing to Lex, but that isn't completely true. Because if it was, Lex never would have even bothered to show up in the first place. Next, Welling's Lionel goes on a rampage of Clark's personal life. He quits the football team, but that's small potatoes compared to what's coming. He sexually harasses Chloe, teases her with a kiss, and then leaves her hanging. Then we get one of my favorite scenes in all of Smallville history. Lana pays a visit to Tom Welling's Lionel in the barn. It starts with Lionel sighing in frustration and then saying... This one. About last night. Um, I'm sorry that you found out about me and Jason the way that you did. You'll get over it. We, we didn't just meet. He was in Paris over the summer, and we sort of spent a lot of time together. How romantic. Lovers meeting, first kiss shared on the banks of the River Seine. He moved to Smallville to be with me, Clark. It's kind of serious. I'm not surprised. man would travel around the world to pluck your succulent fruit. Don't talk to me like that. <laughs> I can't help it. Sorry. Clark, I need you to promise me something. Whatever you want. Don't tell anyone about me and Jason. I don't understand why you're so interested in this high school football coach. Think a minute. Do you have any idea what I have to offer you? Yeah, yeah, I think I do. Lies and secrecy and a whole lot of confusion. You're the one that broke up with me, remember? Oh, that was a mistake. I was, I was too young to know what I was doing. I'm older now, more mature. Well, I'm not so sure. Oh, Lana, I'm very different. Let me show you. do you think you are? Clark Kent. Of course. Throughout the entire scene, Lionel's exasperated with Lana's vacuousness. I mean, seriously. 
go back and watch the episode. Lionel keeps rubbing the back of his neck in irritation with all of these sarcastic remarks, and I I just fucking love it. Another cool moment comes when Super Lionel pays a visit to Lex at the mansion and starts drinking scotch. Now, what's cool is that obviously Clark's never had alcohol in Lex's presence before. But Lex is okay with who he thinks is Clark, helping himself to some liquor. He doesn't encourage it, but he doesn't stop it either. Blink and you miss it, but it's just a cool little character moment for Lex. Doesn't last long, though. Super Lionel beats the shit out of Lex, and only Martha's timely intervention with Kryptonite's enough to save him. Now, it takes a full-scale prison riot, but eventually Clark manages to trade bodies uh, again with Lionel and put things back the way they should be. But this wasn't a disposable incident. Lionel's healed both in terms of his liver disease and his soul. Luckily, he doesn't remember a thing about trading places with Clark, but being in such intimate contact with Clark's soul rubbed something off on him. Lionel isn't the man that he was before. He's been healed and restored on so many levels. This takes the concept of Clark's blood having restorative properties and really takes that to the next level. But more than that, it foreshadows something else that uh, is going to happen to Lionel toward the end of the season. Now, I touched on it in part one of my dreaded season four coverage, but because I don't give a shit about spoilers this season, Lionel really is a changed person. In time, he becomes a very conflicted person. He wants to do the right thing, and he has honorable intentions, but more often than not, What we see is Lionel struggling struggling against his darkest nature. The good side usually prevails, don't get me wrong, but that doesn't mean he's not a very conflicted individual. More on that later, though. Something else. Tom Welling played Lionel for most of Transference. He absorbed Lionel's tics and mannerisms. And you really do buy that this is Lionel inside of Clark's body. This is something that I truly don't think uh, that Tom Welling would have been capable of back in the first season. He just didn't have the chops for it back then. But he does now. And toward the end of the episode, he's truly scary as Lionel. But before that, he's got the joy of discovery of Clark's powers. Lifting the tractor, using super speed, blasting off heat vision. I mean, Lionel's having the time of his life. Still, it's interesting that when he discovers Lex cleared out one of his bank accounts, he tries to get it back. It never seems to cross Lionel's mind that there are millions of ways for him to make even more money by using Clark's powers. Now, to be fair, This is all pretty new to him. It takes a while for the ramifications of all these powers to really sink in for Lionel. What's really interesting, though, is that Lionel has a new respect for Clark. Lionel tells Clark that he's cracked the code when you have power. Real power. It's not just that it's 
better left concealed. Power only truly works when you conceal it. If nobody knows how powerful you are, that is power. Lionel, Lionel's preference has always been to flaunt his power and let everyone know what a big shot he is. Obviously, that's not how Clark rolls, and Lionel respects Clark for it. For his part, John Glover does a pretty good job at playing Clark. Everything's up, uh, up front and forthright with Clark. John Glover has said time and again that it was challenging getting into that because his natural tendency is to want to insert all kinds of quirks and things. But the style that Welling set up was his straightforward honesty. And that was foreign to Glover's way of doing things. So, in a way, it's kind of tough to argue who had a, a, a tougher assignment with uh, transference. Anyway, Clark has or attempts to have, resolution with Chloe, Lana, and Lex. Chloe, who's been victimized by as many kryptonite mutants as anybody, and in fact been one herself, doesn't really give Clark much of a chance to apologize. Now, that seems harsh at first, but consider this. She's been bullied by Clark when he's on Red Kryptonite. Just a few episodes ago, he totally friend-zoned her. And here in Transference, it came off like uh, Clark came on to her, knowing how she feels, made fun of her, and then left her hanging. She's hurt. She lashed out at Clark because she, fe she feels completely humiliated and betrayed by how he treated her. And who can blame her? For her part, Lana's trying to protect Jason. Now, I said my piece before, about teachers dating students, and if you missed that, go back to the first part of my dreaded season four coverage where I, I went off on this huge rant about it. But the short version though is I think teachers who mess around with students deserve whatever they get. I mean, I'm sorry, but I've seen way too many bad things happen to innocent people because of stuff like that. I will never take Lana and Jason's side in this. All the same though, Lana's trying to protect Jason from getting fired and possibly spending time in jail. Now, I have no idea what the age of consent is in, tech, in uh, Kansas, but if it's 18, there's a problem there because I'm pretty sure Lana's 17 in this episode. She was definitely 17 when they met. Both, and here's my point, both Chloe and Lana bite Clark's head off and don't even give him a chance to explain. And maybe there is no explanation that either of them were ready to hear at that moment. Maybe the wounds were just too new. But it's interesting that the very next scene involves Clark visiting Lex. For his own protection, Lex pulls a gun on Clark and demands information to verify Clark's identity. After that, all's forgiven. Now, in some sense, Lex owes Clark a lifetime of forgiveness considering what's happened between those two recently, but at the same time, Clark's been dosed on red kryptonite before and pushed Lex around a few times. Back in Velocity from the Mighty Season 3, he even stole Lex's car. Now, true, he gave the car back and it was none the worse for wear, but he still took advantage of Lex. On some level, Lex has a right to be angry about what happened, but 
Instead, he's already found out a little bit about the transference, he knows it's been reversed, and he's just happy to have his friend back and his father in prison. It's just interesting. That's all I'm saying. One other bit of business. Edgar's released from prison. Now, it had to be that way because Goff and Miller had to make sure they took the crystal of water away from Lionel. Lionel had to have it for a little while, and then he had to lose it. Edgar's basically the plot device with feet that gets the stone out of the prison and into Bridget Crosby's hands. Now, honestly, I might have liked it if Edgar had stuck around and been a supporting character this season. I mean, the guy's funny, he's quirky, and his expertise would have made for useful exposition, but obviously that never happened. Also, I'd, I'd have liked it if Bridget Crosby could have stuck around too, but same thing, never happened. Basically, Christopher Reeve passed away. And let's face it, you can't recast Virgil Swan with a new actor and hope nobody notices because Reeve himself was stunt casting to begin with. So the hope was that Margot Kidder would pick up the slack on this one. The problem there is she shit-talked Goff and Miller and how they, how they paid tribute to Christopher Reeve's passing on the show. Now, I forget the details, but she had another of her famous meltdowns over it. It's pretty much what happened. Even then, though, she might have been welcomed back to the show. Or other people think so, anyway. Me, I'm a little skeptical about that, but whatever. She might have been welcomed back. The issue here is that she, Margot Kidder, is the one who set out and decided never to come back for more episodes. She fucked it up for herself, and because of that, Transference is her swan song with Smallville. Goff and Miller already had a complicated situation on their hands in trying to tell a story that depended on Virgil Swan with Christopher Reeve having passed away. But now the situation had become unworkable after Kidder said she wasn't coming back. Now, I've read speculation aplenty that the witch subplot, which we really haven't seen very much of just yet, that witch subplot would have been resolved much earlier than it ultimately was had Christopher Reeve and or Margot Kidder been available to deal with the storyline surrounding the stones. But obviously that's not what happened. And in case it wasn't obvious, I blame none of this on Goff and Miller. They had to do damage control in the middle of a pretty fucking bad situation. All the good luck that worked in their favor from seasons one through Mighty Three just plain ran out during the dreaded fourth season. They should be, in my opinion, they should be congratulated for handling things as well as they did. But still, certain plots are completely their fault on the conceptual level. But, honestly, now's not the time, now's not the time for that because this episode's already running long as it is. But, in fact, you know what, just hold on for just a minute. I want to get uh, another sip off my Dr. Pepper. Now, another cool moment comes when Martha goes to the prison to talk to John Glover's Clark. It's easiest to buy Glover as Clark when he's got someone from the main cast to bounce off of. And that wasn't very easy to do except in this one scene. And I'm not criticizing it or anything, I'm, I'm just saying. Anyway, but what makes it work is the dawning comprehension that this man 
that Martha thinks is Lionel is, in fact, Clark. Glover's Clark tells this story about Clark's childhood that only Clark and Martha would know about in order to convince her that he's telling her the truth. And you can see the exact moment the penny falls for Martha. She stops, she listens, she hesitates, and then, boom, she believes him. Blink and you miss it. But it's in there. Anyway, so what I'm saying here is that Annette O'Toole really sold the moment, and because of that, it's easier to buy into the story. So anyway, as an episode, Transference works on multiple levels. It's a fun little adventure story where we get to see Super Lionel tear a bunch of shit up, but it's got major ramifications for the rest of the season. Hell, for the rest of the series. A lot of things pivot on Transference as an episode. It's got a good reputation among fans, and in my opinion, deservedly so. Now, as to the bunch of episodes we've reviewed so far, I regarded these as the dreaded season 4's golden age. As I said five million years ago when I first started this episode, I'm perfectly willing to admit that the first string of episodes this season are incredibly strong. In fact, I think they inadvertently contribute to the dreaded season 4's suckitude. Because if these episodes had, ju- had been just mediocre, or even outright terrible, I think the rest of the dreaded season 4 wouldn't have been as shocking as it was, but these first 6 or 7 episodes, I think, kind of lulled us into a false sense of security. We all assumed that Smallville had turned a corner after the mighty season 3's darkness. And in a way, it did. For better or for worse, Smallville was never that dark ever again. But that cuts both ways. What none of us expected was for the latter two-thirds of, the, uh, of this season to mostly be shit with a side of suck. It never occurred to us that the dreaded season four might be front-loaded with some of the strongest episodes of Smallville's entire run and then get followed by crappy crappiness. It just didn't seem possible, but here we are. What I'm saying here is the fact that I haven't torn an episode apart yet doesn't mean I've suddenly changed my tune about this season. It just means that the worst is still to come. Still, there are some surprises this episode. As I rewatched these episodes, I really did enjoy myself. I enjoyed the, the twists and turns the plot took. When Lana's not around anyway. And I'll come back to that in a sec. But this is the first time that I've really held the dreaded season four under a microscope since the series ended. I always knew I liked this first string of episodes, but I guess I didn't realize just how strong, well-written, and just plain old fun they are. Except for the Lana stuff. In seasons one, two, and Mighty Three, Lana usually plays some kind of role in the resolution of any given episode. Even if she's just the damsel who needs to be rescued, she's part of the problem, and to some degree part of the solution. But for a good bit of the episodes we've talked about so far, Lana's storyline has been almost completely isolated from the rest of the characters. Pretty much the majority of her scenes are with Jason, or occasionally she'll run into Clark to tell him to keep his mouth shut about her secrets and lies, 
Secrets and lies, secrets and fucking lies. And this is a little ironic because Al Goff was quoted as saying that the reason the witch storyline ever existed in the first place is because he and Miles Miller wanted a storyline that essentially revolved around Lana and brought her deeper into the mythos. The outcome of that required forcing Lana to the sidelines since she's got nobody to uh, confide in for her portion of the story just yet. It's just interesting. That's all I'm saying. Anyway, now, as to next time, I'm going to talk about another five episodes. Namely, Jinx, Spell, Bound, Scare, Unsafe, and Pariah. So, yeah. I think that's pretty much it for this time. Uh, Bye, everybody. I will see you next week. Adventures of Superman on the big screen and the small screen, starting with the Fleischer Shorts. For Kirk Allen, movie serials. Superman and the Mole Men, the 1950s television series, The Adventures of Superman. The Christopher Reeve movies, Lois and Clark, Superman the Animated Series, and more. Come check out the Man of Screen podcast at themanofscreen.potomatic.com. That's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T 
T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing, and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the two true freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law some assembly required batteries not included. Do not remove this tag under penalty of law. All models are over the age of 18. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with DeMonzacore of Milan, Italy.